So our reading for tonight will be coming from two places. We'll start in 1 Kings 17 and we'll finish in Luke chapter 7. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow in that place to supply you with food. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Do you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Now Luke chapter 7. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. The news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. scale of one to coming through the speaker system. Oh, that's now a 10. How good. That's very encouraging. Wow, what a full house. This is so awesome. Look around. Hey, let's just take a moment. Everyone, just take a look around. This is so exciting. Man, the NRL grand finals on this afternoon. It's Sydney versus Sydney. And yet, here we are as God's people. I think church is okay, right? How good's church? Great to have everyone in the room. Yeah, two claps. Awesome. Um, something we're looking just to grow in as a church is, and it's everything that this series that we're currently walking through is about, is encountering Jesus. That we don't come to church to learn nice lessons from which we reflect and because of which we sort of like implement a lesson or two. Um, that's true. You will learn things as we open up God's Word. But we actually want to come to church and, and think of the story of the Scriptures as something that we too get to experience. That the gifts of the Spirit the moving of God and the power of Jesus actually meet us as we meet together. That this isn't just a place where we experience moral reform, but actually miraculous power. Uh, my name's Alex. I've been the pastor here for about a year and a few months. And for some people, that feels like a long time. For others, it feels really short, and that's encouraging. Uh, but I have the privilege of just leaning in as the pastor here with my wonderful wife, Kath. And man, it's such a delight. 
We're finishing our series in Encountering Jesus today, and man, we just encourage you as we finish this time, here's the question I've got for you. What does God want to say to you? How does God want to minister to your heart? How does Jesus want to speak right to you, right where you're at? Interrupt your Sunday rhythm. Something you need to know about Kath and I is we love movies. We sound like couch potatoes when I tell people this, but we just love a good movie. Finish the week, get onto the couch, load up Netflix, and put on a movie. And recently we were talking about going through the classics, and last night we found ourselves watching The Shawshank Redemption. Any fans out there? Yeah, great. And this is how you sort of set yourself apart as like a sophisticated, you know, individual. The Shawshank Redemption, yes, that's, I've watched that, it's wonderful. Um, but it's this movie and it's this story about a guy named Andy Dufresne. And Andy Dufresne has been falsely uh, charged with murder because of which he has to serve two life sentences at a prison called Shawshank. And as he enters into prison, he goes through that experience where all prisoners go through this, where, they, where they're hopeful about seeing out their term, and then they go through the mundaneity and the laboriousness and the pushback of prison life, and they get bullied and hurt, and he ends up experiencing despair. Nine years later, after coming into friendship with a guy named Red, he's sitting at the table talking through what it looks like for him to think about life after Shawshank. And he paints this beautiful picture about jumping in a car, driving across the border through into Mexico, hitting the Pacific Ocean, and starting his new life after Shawshank. And as they're discussing these things, Red turns to Andy and says, damn it, Andy, stop. These are all pipe dreams. Don't be so silly. You just have to face the facts. This is where you are. You're not going to be anywhere else. Just go through prison. That's the way it is. Mexico's down there, and you're in here. And Andy says, you're right. It is down there, and I'm in here. I guess it comes down to one simple choice, really. Get busy living or get busy dying. And they have this conversation, and Andy says to Red, don't forget this, Red. And Red says, forget what? And Andy says, there's one thing that no prison guard, no person, no prison can ever take away from you. This light on the inside of ourselves which no darkness can steal. And that one thing is called hope. And Red turns to him and he says, hope, that is a dangerous thing. It can drive a man insane. And Red knows something that Andy too knows. Red had given up, he'd gotten despairing. Red had said, look, I I could imagine life after prison, but ah, no, stuff it, it's not working. But Andy didn't give up. Andy Dufresne saw it through. And Andy knew something about hope, which Red had given up on, which is this. Hope can pull us through hard times and propel us through pain. Hope is this gift, this eternal gift, that does something on the inside of you, which nothing on the outside of you can take away. For Andy, it looked like getting to the other side of prison. But here's the question. What does it look like for humanity as a whole, in the deepest part of ourselves? What does hope look like? And is hope strong enough, good enough, more, uh, what's the word, appropriate enough to pull us through the pain and propel us through suffering? That's the ultimate question. Hope can drive a man insane. It pulls and propels, and I'll say it again, it can do something on the inside of you, which nothing on the outside of you can take away. I just want to ask us this afternoon, do each of us here know that hope? As we finish out our series in Encountering Jesus, we're going to look at a lady that we're titling the Hopeless Widow. 
She's actually nameless in the Bible, but her story is so clear. And so I'd love to give her a name. I can't do that. The biblical writers didn't give us that. But as you think about her story, zoom in and think about the particular kind of person that she is. It comes from Luke 7, verses 11 to 17, the hopeless widow. And verses 11 to 12 sort of capture the context. Here's what it says. Verse 11 to 12. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. And right out of the gate, in setting the scene for what we'll explore next in three brief points is this. Here's the context. You've got a woman. She's a widow. She's lost her husband. She's lost her son. She's got three very basic needs that are apparent to Jesus and apparent to us if we'd so hear. She's got material needs, emotional needs, and spiritual needs. What are her emotional needs? You ever lost someone? She's mourning the death of her son. She's mourning the loss of her late husband. She's an emotionally incapacitated person. She has emotional needs. She's asking these questions. Man, who's going to comfort me at night? Who's going to walk with me through life's pain? Who's going to do this journey with me as I experience this thing we call real life? She's got emotional needs. Who's going to answer that? Two, she's got material needs. At the time, uh, in the patriarchal society within which this was written, the way that you made yourself financially stable was essentially through the income of the man. Uh, that it was the man who'd go out, achieve money, get that kind of thing. And by virtue of that, uh, a woman's role was... Now, this is interesting, because in modern times, just get me when I say this, a woman's role in that environment was to stay home, take care of the family. But it's not the same way that we think about it with sort of modern nuclear family type. Women were like bosses back in the day. So they'd stay home, but they would have like a hectic schedule, you know? They'd be feeding, they'd be working, they'd be doing carpentry, a whole host of things, but still they'd stay home. Men would be the breadwinners, so to speak. And so she's lost her husband, no income. So who does she rely upon next? Well, not herself, right? She's not going to make money. She's not going to achieve stability for herself. Who does she rely upon? Her son. So pause. No husband. Now no son. What's she feeling as she walks towards the grave outside the city walls? Hopeless. Completely futile. And then we know, because this city just uh, is about 20 kilometers north, um, just past Capernaum, we know that she's probably got some sort of historical, spiritual relationship with this guy we call Yahweh, God, the, the God of the Old Testament. And there's some kind of connection there. We know not what, but she's asking this question in the face of her emotional need, in the face of her material need, man, where is God? Like, why would God wish this upon me? Why would God do this to me? Why would God let me find myself in this situation? Where is God? Emotional, material, and spiritual. And so what happens next? And in this little passage, this wonderful little story, I think we see three things. We actually see 10 billion things, but I preached over the other week, and I want to try not to do it again this week. We see Jesus' heart, God's hand, and our hope. Jesus' heart, God's hand, and our hope. So let's look at Jesus' heart. One of the big objections I experience from friends, from family, and particularly as a pastor is this. Man, God, God seems so distant, so disinterested. It's like he created the world, spun it up, let it go, and now I just don't feel his presence anymore, and it's really questionable as to whether he's involved in my life at all. He seems distant and disinterested. Where is God? 
Is God cold? Is God clinical? Does God care? One of the beauty, beautiful things about this passage is it doesn't allow us as Christians to think that. You see it here in verse 13. Let me just read it for us. Just as the woman's coming out of the city, it says, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Now just get those movements. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Now here's what we know as readers of this passage. Go with me here on this one. It's really important. Here's what we know as readers of this passage. What's Jesus about to do? Man, he's about to marry heaven with earth. God's going to come in power. The miraculous is going to break out. This guy who is dead is now going to be raised to life. So here's the question. Why doesn't Jesus just do that first? Why doesn't Jesus just say, oh, peace out, all sweet, here's my miraculous power, bang, sun's fine. Why is it, what does he do? He gets unnecessarily emotionally involved. Right? It's very inefficient, Jesus. Right? Like, what are you doing? This is pointless. Unless. Here's something I've learned in my walk with Jesus. God's power always proceeds his compassion. Always. Or at least nine times out of ten. Sometimes he's just like, I'm the king, here it is, read it and weep, and it's like, that's fine, you're holy, 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 as we sang before. But man, nine times out of ten, his compassion always comes, married together with his power. You can't divorce the person of Jesus from the power of God. You can't divorce the face of Jesus from the forceful power of the Holy Spirit. They both come together, always relationally entwined but miraculously involved. His compassion always precedes his power. It says compassion in the NRSV translation. Our translation uses his heart went out to her. I just want you to think about this metaphor for a second. I was meditating on this week and it just wrecked me. Picture, just feel free to close your eyes if you need to. I had to. Um, picture someone's heart leaving their body and like going to someone. That's weird, right? In the Jewish imagination, the heart was like the center of a person's being. And when you think about daily life, so easy, I find it really simple to make myself the center of my attention and my being. But here's Jesus. He takes the center of himself and he orbits it around the center of another. Jesus, he takes the center of himself and he orbits it around the center of another. He's compassionate. His heart goes out. Why are you doing this, Jesus? And his answer is really simple. It's my heart. This is Jesus' heart. This is what he longs to show us. And so here's the question I've got for you. What do you think of God? A.W. Tozer, a Baptist pastor from America, he said in the 20th century that what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Here's what I want you to hear first. He has a heart. Some of you need to hear that this afternoon. Do you know Jesus' heart? It's gentle and compassionate and patient. Henry David Thoreau, who's a philosopher, And I think his words really capture what Jesus does here. He says, it's not what you look at that matters most, it's what you see. And what does Jesus see when he sees the widow? What do you see when you see someone who's struggling? So often you'll be driving along, and this is the story of my life, Kath and I'll be driving along, and when it comes to road rules, Kath and I have got like a justice streak, you know, does anyone relate to this? So when someone speeds, you just like, hope they get caught, you know? Or someone cuts another person off and you're just like, man, wrath of God, I know it's real and I know it's good because I am judging you. But then the person in the car next to you can often say, 
man, like, think about the day they might be having, you know? <laughs> you don't know what's happening in their life. Here's the cool thing about Jesus. That's always true for him. He always knows what's happening in our lives. He always sees behind the curtain. He always knows the thoughts, the anxieties, the fears, the details, and he reaches out in compassion to them before he tries to give you an answer or a problem solver. That's what he does. It's always his heart. The hard thing about this text, this is point one, and wow, time, hey? The hard thing about this text is that Jesus' heart is not just something to admire, it's something to adopt. What do you see when you look at people? Is there something of Jesus' heart you could adopt? Just daily, weekly, monthly. Jesus' heart. Second, God's hand. The beautiful thing about this text is it shows us that God's not simply willing to turn up in our mess. He's actually able to do something in and through it. Let me read from verses... uh, 14 to 15, but before I get there, let me just note, um, David before, he read 1 Kings chapter 17, the story of Elijah the prophet, and this actually forms the background in terms of the Jewish imagination with what would come to mind when a Jewish reader would read Luke chapter 7. What do I mean? Well, it's a similar story. You've got this man of power, Elijah, and he meets a widow who's lost her son, similar plight, same power, same plight, but Elijah the prophet does something to raise the son back to life. And what Luke is doing as he records this story is he's doing so in such a way, he's a literary genius, most of the gospel writers are, he's doing so in such a way that he's making you think, oh, there's a difference between the prophet Elijah and the person of Jesus. And what's that difference? Well, look at the story. When Elijah meets the son who's who's died, he goes in and he pleads, God, if it's your will, would you please, I just need to ask you, God, if you would just heal this person, if you would raise them back to life, and he puts on a fuss. What does Jesus do? Just a word. Just a word. Get up. Elijah, he takes his body, and the son is in the upper room, and he lays it out on top of him. What does Jesus do? Let me read verse 14 and 15. Then he went up and touched the buyer. They were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Here's Luke's takeaway point. God works miracles, and Jesus is God. Because here's the irony in the text. Later they proclaim, oh man, something amazing has happened. There's a prophet among us. But here's the distinction. Elijah proved he was just a prophet because he claimed to represent and give message on behalf of God. But Jesus just used his word. The prophet Elijah went through a big fuss, but Jesus, he's just like, I'm the king of glory. Son, get up. Here's Luke's point. God works miracles and Jesus is God. God works miracles and Jesus is God. This is actually quite challenging for us. Can I be honest? I find it really easy in life to be a practical atheist. Let me define that. An atheist is someone who doesn't believe that God exists. I'm what you might call, in terms of what I think with my mind, a theist. I believe God is real. 
But man, it's easy to descend and decline and to devolve into being a practical atheist, whereby I agree with things with my mind, but I don't live as if they're true. What do I mean? Here's a question I love to ask myself all the time. What's the first thing I do when I'm sick? What's the first thing I do when I'm experiencing trouble at work? What's the first thing I do when um, there's a loved one in my life and they're on the brink of perhaps death or decay? And most of my answer to that is worry. And then get into problem-solving mode and sort of try and become chief troubleshooter extraordinaire and but here's the point of this text, God works miracles. And as people who live in an urban center with highly educated backgrounds in a secular world, it is gonna be so easy to agree with this with our heads but not live it with our hearts. And here's what I wanna to say to us this afternoon, that it, on one level, let me talk to the, rationals, the rationalists in the room. If you're a Christian, it is more rational to believe that God can show up in miraculous power today than not because the same God we see in the pages of Scripture is the same God alive today. It's more rational to believe that. Now, it's harder to walk after it, but it's more rational to believe it. It's an invitation, it's a call, and for some of us, secular Aussies, my hand up is up as well, it's a challenge. Let me talk to those of us in the room who just have no hangover or no hang-ups with this. Isn't it awesome that God moves in power today? Isn't it exciting? that God could actually show up here, that we wouldn't just be encouraging each other with words, but actually God could reach down from heaven and speak right to us in tangible ways. God moves in power. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis, so I just want to read it for us and then um, preach a touch more before we move on to the last point. Lewis says this, it's on the board um, behind me. If we admit God, must we admit miracles? Question. Indeed, indeed. You have no security against it. That is the bargain. I said last week that I think God's doing something special in this community. And I actually think as we posture ourselves to hear from heaven as we gather and meet with the Holy Spirit here in this place, we won't be found wanting. That God can turn up in our midst. Do you believe, let me just ask us this. This is rhetorical. Feel free to get involved as I preach right now. Do you believe that God can work miracles? Do you believe that God can come in power? Do you believe that despite the way we've been pained by the world and sometimes this has been ill-modeled by the church, that God can be here today? And so here's the invitation, church. Man, this is something we need to actually cultivate. We're not going to flick a switch. We're going to turn up one Sunday and all of a sudden it's like Alex gives the invitation and miracles. It's actually going to be something we cultivate. Kind of like the vine hanging on a trellis. We are the trellis. How do we posture ourselves as we come to encounter Jesus? Now, before I move on, let me just say one thing. So many of us have prayed for miracles in our lives, maybe for a loved one in our own lives, maybe feel plagued by a certain kind of physical or chemical or biological illness, and you could just list out all the different things that might make that up. And here's the question. What do you do when it's rational to believe God can move in power, but you haven't seen it yourself? And what's God's answer to that? And this text has a bit of an answer. It's not exhaustive. It's not complete. But man, I hope it ministers to us. Because the answer is our hope. Let me just read from verses, actually no verses this time, I've got a quote for us. Andrew Del Bunco, he was a social scientist, political theorist, and he wrote towards the back end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st. 
And he writes this book called The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. And he's painting this picture which says that all worldviews, all religions, all ways by which you look at this reality, all of them tell a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Now, he doesn't do this, but if I was to parse out those stories, each of them would have a definition of hope. Each of them would claim that there's something you can have on the inside of you with nothing on the outside of you can take away. And Del Bunco's book, Station on Hope, when he such a way, I feel a bit hopeless with this microphone, story of my life. He writes in such a way that he gets you to think through, now what would qualify as really hopeful? What would qualify? And he reflects this. He says these words. It'll be on the screen. Hope is truly hope if it overcomes the lurking suspicion that all of our getting and spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for death. Welcome to church. <laughs> He's picking up on this sense within us that, man, some of us have hopes, like sort of like month-long hopes. Like, here's a hope you could have. Work's busy, holiday's coming soon. Hope. Or it could be, you know, trying for kids, not going so well, but maybe one day, hope. But here's what he says. Even though on a daily, rhythmic life experience, we say things like that. There's this like equalizer that death rings out to all of us. Death is the great end. And so he says, if humans have a hope that can't outlast the face of death, it's no hope at all. No hope at all. Sobering, helpful. Because what hope lasts in the face of death? This is why this passage is so fascinating. In the Bible, there are, I think, eight. I've listed eight. Eight stories of people being raised back to life through miraculous intervention. You've got a few in the Old Testament. You'll see them behind me here if you want to do your own research. You'll see them behind me here. You've got Old Testament stories and then New Testament stories. A few in the Gospels, a few in the Book of Acts, and then in the Kings and the Prophets, that kind of thing. But there's one resurrection not included in this list, which is completely unique from all of them. And that resurrection is the resurrection of Jesus. It's the Easter story. In each of these stories, today's story included, every person upon whom God works miraculously is raised back to finite, limited, earthly life. This son will die again. Lazarus in John 11 he would have died again. Each of their lives were material, finite, limited. But one resurrection story recorded by all the Gospels, preached by all the apostles, is the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus was a resurrection back to imperishable life, spiritual glory, eternal and infinite. The first of its kind, and when Luke records this story, finishing his gospel, his biography of Jesus with the ultimate resurrection, he's giving us something that I want to call a sign. And the sign is simply this, that all acts of power, all acts of beauty wrought by God, all acts of justice instituted by the very hand of God himself, all of them are signposts to the ultimate resurrection that he would offer to each and every single one of us. 
All of them. Now, this tells us something about miracles, which is quite profound. It means that we can't rely upon God as this impersonal force that we just ask to do our bidding for us because we've had a bad day. It means that God's on a mission, that everything he does in this life, whether through miraculous power or just mundane, beautiful rhythm that we call the rhythms of grace, all of it is a witness, is a signpost, is a a clarion call that, man, we are not where we should be and God's going to do something one day to make us that imperishable, resurrected, hope-filled, glorious bodies. It's called eternal life, John would say in his gospel. It's knowing Jesus and making him known. It's centering our whole lives around him. And so here's the invitation. Do you know hope? We've looked at the story of a hopeless widow. Jesus meets her emotionally with his heart. Meets her materially with his hand. And meets her spiritually with his hope. Do you know that hope? One of the most profound images for hope that I've ever heard of is that it's an anchor. If you think of a boat on the sea, as I'm speaking, I'd just love to invite the band back up. And I'm pretty chuffed that I'm basically on time. Go me. But you think about a ship out in the sea, and the waves are just going up and down and up and down. But if you're anchored, Sure, you'll undulate, but you'll never get detached. Sure, you'll experience like the ups and downs of the sea, but you'll stay in the same place. And here's what hope does. Hope doesn't make you not go through crap in life, but it gives you something through crap in life, if I can say it like that. It's an anchor. And the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 6, verse 19 would just say, Hope is an anchor for the soul. And everyone who comes to Jesus by faith receives that anchor. So here's the invitation this afternoon, just as we finish our time. Do you have the Christian hope? Something on the inside of you which nothing on the outside of you, not even death, can take away. As we contemplate that, I'd just love us to stand. And each week as we walk through this series, we're just making the invitation really clear. Man, do you know Jesus? Do you want to meet him? And the promise of the Bible is that if you confess faith in Jesus and walk with him, man, you won't just have hope for the future, you'll have help in the present. Shoulder to shoulder in the church of Jesus Christ, but at the same time, the presence and power of God in your midst. And so can I just invite us to close our eyes? I just want to open up a space where everyone just becomes attentive to the voice of God. I asked at the start, what could God be speaking to you? Hope is a dangerous thing. If you don't know Jesus, we would just love to extend the moment where you might get to interact with him for the very first time, just in prayer. If as I've been speaking, you've found yourself warmed, perhaps hope-filled. I just want to say that's God. That's the Spirit of God moving in you. And if you would so open yourself to it, we would just say, man, respond to him in prayer. And we respond simply by saying, God, sorry that I've walked my own way. Thank you for what you've done in Jesus. Please come into my life. And as you pray that prayer, we believe God fills you with his Spirit, meets you, and sets you on a path, the end of which is life to the full and life eternal. 
And so if you would like to receive that life, even right now, I just want to invite you to raise your hand. If everyone's eyes closed, people's heads bowed, thank you, I see that hand. If you've never responded to the invitation of Jesus, you want to be filled with hope today. Just invite you, raise your hand, I'll wait another minute more. Thank you, I see that as well. Two, three, thank you so much. I just sense the Spirit of God telling me to just wait a minute more. If you would like to receive that hope today, start that conversation with God. Just raise your hand. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lord. Because we believe that there's no better decision that you can make than to say yes to Jesus. We as a church want to come around you and repeat the words that I lead us through. And so you feel free to respond with and mimic the words I say in church. I just invite you, if you call New Life Brisbane home, say it along with me. We're going to pray <laughs> to Jesus right now. We're going to talk to him. This might feel weird. It's exhilarating. And so as I pray, feel free to repeat after me, Jesus. Thank you that I can have hope because of you. Thank you for showing me your heart. Sorry that I've walked astray from you, Lord. Please fill me, Lord God. Fill me with hope. Fill me with life. And fill me now with your spirit. Because it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Can we just give... The Bible says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, he's faithful to forgive. And so if that's you, we just want to celebrate with that decision and make it very clear what your next step might be. And that's really simple. In a moment, we're going to have teams, myself and Kath down your front right, Dylan and perhaps another down my front right, your front left. I'm going to talk as if I'm you. It's more clear. And then James and Sinead just up the back. And we just want to consecrate a space right now. This is the last sermon in this series called Encountering Jesus. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the testimony from everyone in this church was, I learned some things and I met with God. I would hate to preach a sermon on the miraculous power of God and not make it available for each and every one of us. That's not up to me. <laughs> Thank God. God actually leaves it up to each and every one of us to make ourselves available. And so if you're praying for healing in any area of your life, if you want to meet with God in a fresh way, if you want a fresh revelation of Jesus' heart to you, man, just come and receive prayer. Front right, front left, and out the back. Vulnerable space. Man, isn't it awesome to get vulnerable before God? So as the band plays, 
and we get ready for communion in two songs time. There you go, there's the menu. What would it look like to make yourself available to encounter Jesus today? Let's sing.